Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. MPs are back in Westminster after their party conference jaunts. But will we get an Indian summer to bask in the warm glow of taking back control or start to feel the chill of Brexit? This week I'm joined by Oliver Wright, The Times policy editor, who's also in charge of our new weekly Brexit briefing, who looks ahead to a heavyweight legal fight. Emma Tucker, The Times deputy editor, wonders if Labour faces the worst of all problems, total irrelevance. But first, Times columnist Jenny Russell on the hidden rules women have to play by in politics after watching that Clinton-Trump debate. America's post-debate polls suggest that Hillary Clinton won a slender victory. I'm not quite so confident. I thought Clinton appeared meeker and weaker than Trump. That's partly because she simply didn't have any answers to some of his principal criticisms, Bill's sexual history, her emails. But it's also because she was horribly constrained by all the subtle hidden rules about women's behaviour on a public stage. Where Trump could be as aggressive, menacing and angry as he pleased, Clinton had to be smiley and reasonable at all times, or risk alienating her audience. It's one of the many ways in which women find it so much more difficult than men to gain and wield power. So, Jenny, this extraordinary debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, I mean, he really stuck the boot in, and yet she was just sort of left standing and smiling most of the time in a way that a normal person would have completely lost the plot, wouldn't they? Yeah, and that made me very uncomfortable watching it because it didn't seem appropriate. It's one thing to be reasonable in the face of criticism and um, not to lose your temper. It's quite another when someone is being that hostile and that menacing and pointing their finger at you and accusing you continually of lying and saying that they're going to send you to jail and subverting the Constitution. To sit and smile in that situation just makes you look fake and it makes you look weak. And there are these extraordinary sort of conspiracy theories being peddled by Trump supporters about how she's a robot and a fly landed on her face and she didn't flinch. And so this must obviously prove that she's a vampire of some sort. But, and, and, but she just sort of has to rise above all that. And you're right that what she's trying to do is not lower herself to his level, but as a result ends up looking 
like not a normal person who doesn't react to being told that he wants to send her to jail or whatever? Well, I think she's in an absolutely impossible position and that criticism from Trump's supporters proves it because on the one hand, she's supposed to be what women are in public, which is reasonable and nice and absorb men's anger and not look like um, a bitch and not look like um, a school teacher and not look like somebody um, who's trying to boss everybody else around. And at the same time, then when she tries to constrain her emotions and we notice that Trump never constrains his in any situation at all, then she's criticised for that too. And this is a problem that women have not only in politics but in the workplace. There's all kinds of evidence that shows that if women behave as men do, if they are as forceful, if they're aggressive, if they interrupt, in that debate you'll notice that Trump interrupted Clinton 17 times. She interrupted him once. If women do any of those things, they're punished for it. They're thought to be unpleasant. People like them less and they judge them in much more negative terms. Emma, what did you make of it watching this this, this debate? C- can I say, as a very powerful woman who manages to <laughs> tread all these lines very <laughs> well in the times... No, I, I, I think... I I think at one level it's it's extraordinary that we're even having this discussion. It's 2016, we've had decades of feminism and yet we seem to be back even before where we started with this whole issue around what Trump said, the way he spoke about women and the fact that some people are even trying to excuse it as mere locker room banter. I mean, it is absolutely disgraceful. But what's so interesting is you could say, well, isn't it awful? You know, we're still having this debate. In fact, it has revealed as Jenny was saying, quite how far there is still to go. So you might think, well, you know, women have conquered the world. It's all fine. We've got these female leaders. But actually, when the chips are down and you put someone like Hillary Clinton up against uh, Donald Trump, you do see what the how much harder it is uh, for women. And I think Jenny's absolutely right. She was constrained on every front, Hillary. She was damned if she did, damned if she didn't. And so she did end up looking slightly robotic because I think she just simply thought, well, I, I you know, I, I have to keep my cool. I have to rise above it. One, one of the things that came out, and it is a, it's an exercise I, I recommend, is switching the volume off and watching this whole debate without <laughs> the, the volume. Switching the telly off is probably, switching the, telly off is probably <laughs> the ideal solution. But if you watch it without the sound on, the, the body language of the two of them is, is, is very revealing. He prowls around. Uh, he looks really quite hostile at one point. He seems to sort of be coming up in a... I don't know whether it was and a camera angle. He looks very hostile he, all the yeah, time. And, he, and his stance is menacing. He sort of stands over her. She she kept her... She, she, kept, she kept quite relatively still. But his whole demeanour was one of a sort of prowling beast that was out to intimidate her. Yes. How much of a problem do you think it is that the stuff that he's saying is clearly striking a court? It doesn't... You know, we find it appalling. The, the liberal media elite that he, well, that he hates find it appalling. But... It, it seems to be striking a chord this with is the thing, and I do a think, certain demographic in America. Yeah, I think we we need to be careful that we don't misread this because you're absolutely right. All the sort of thinking people, well, a lot of a lot of people think what he said was appalling, but there is a risk that it struck a chord with the very people his the heartland, the sort of white male, uh, working class. Uh, sort of blue collar workers full of grievances who are just thinking you know why can't a man say what he wants in the privacy of a locker room uh, and I think there's a danger that the, the, the sort of bien pensant people will misread it and think well this is a turning point and then <laughs> as often has happened recently we'll discover it wasn't. Ollie, in, to throw into 
the mix. We've got Nigel Farage acting as sort of chief cheerleader. We do, yes. He's he's well, he's still technically interim leader of UKIP, although that's not really a full time job because he just seems to be in America describing him as being like a silverback gorilla. Yes, uh, it, which, which apparently is, sort of is a, distasteful in its own sense. Which is a, um, what, what do you make of that? Could you ever imagine a politician getting anywhere near as well? Anyway close to where Donald Trump has while having said those things but in the UK no I mean I think I think it's a we obviously take certain things from America and our politics follows certain trends and I mean there is an interesting parallel between Trump and what's happening in the Labour Party although a very different type of politics you've got a leader both in Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn who has basically been disavowed by the large majority of his own party, although obviously their politics are um, are, are completely different. Um, I mean, I, I was struck by exactly the same thing, which was the body language of Trump standing over her. But I, I thought she came across as dignified, actually. I didn't, I mean, I think, and I think the thing you have to remember is while Trump may have played to a certain section, the blue-collar workers, whoever, they were probably likely to vote for him anyway. And I think it will have alienated the swing voters and it will be the swing voters that decide the election. And I, I think Hillary actually came out of it came out of it well, but that was just my perspective on it. Um, well, I, I had two responses to it. First of all, I was watching it from the perspective, as Emma says, of not, I'm a London liberal, but how would this play with me if I was sitting as an angry man without much hope of a job and a future in America? And I have to say, if you're watching it from that perspective, Trump spoke to you very clearly. He, Hillary was talking a lot about liberal principles. She was saying that America hasn't done enough for Syrian refugees. She talked about her work with women and children. She talked about sympathy with the people of Africa. Trump came out and said, I'm going to bring you jobs. I'm going to bring you better health care. I'm going to change the tax code. I'm going to make your life richer. And I think we miss that raw appeal, quite apart from the sexism. But I come back to the point that he was able to say whatever he pleased, and Hillary clearly wasn't. From somebody who is probably about to become the most powerful person in the world, and then the most powerful woman in the world, it is a terrible fact that she was not able to come out there and just say whatever came into her head and what she thought to be true, fearlessly and frankly, which Obama can do most of the time, although it has to because, be said that... Do you think he, that's because she's a woman, or is that a caricature of hers? I don't, I mean, no, I think it's because she's a woman, and if you're a woman in public life, you have to learn very early on to constrain your behaviour. Look at what happened when Bill Clinton was in the White House and she was involved in trying to do health care. She was so criticised for being bossy and injured. Would you say the same thing is true, thing thing is true doing it, isn't it? No, she was... As will happen when... If she ends up in the White House and Bill's found to be sticking his oar in... But actually, she was eminently qualified to do it as somebody who'd been in the political world for a long time. But it's very similar to the fact that when Obama ran for president, he had to take great care not to appear angry about the treatment of blacks in America because the model of... And a black man as being an angry man is such a negative image in America so that he had to be super controlled in that sphere. But as you've noticed, Trump doesn't have to... Don't, don't all politicians do that. They have to counter... Well, apart from Trump, who was a sort of anti-politician. I mean, you know, David Cameron had to play down how posh he was, and there's an element of it's all politicians having... It's not quite the same having. thing. I, I, you, I knew you were going to say, uh, Ollie, you were going to say, would we say the same thing about Angela Merkel? And I do wonder whether there is a cultural thing going on here, because I, you look yes. at Angela Merkel, you had Hella Thorning-Schmidt in Denmark, we've, we've had Thatcher, we've got Theresa May... I don't get the feeling that they are as constrained uh, as possibly Hillary is. And I do wonder whether, and I think, again, one of the surprising things about this whole election debate in America has been the level of misogyny that you see in America. I, I, I mean, I'm no expert, but it looks much greater than, it, than, it, than you find over here in Europe. 
and that's been something truly shocking for me. So I, I, I want I don't think you can necessarily say it's all women. I think if you're a female leader in Europe, you're possibly less constrained. I can't I can't think that Angela Merkel has ever held back. I mean, no. she's not a very demonstrative woman anyway. Maybe it's to do with being German, but I don't feel that she has to watch her back. Well, I think you're quite right that the culture in which you grew up matters. I mean, Germany and the Nordic countries are much more clearly and explicitly about the equality of women in their less sexist places. And I think perhaps in America, um, the fact that women are in such trouble is to do with America's vision of itself as a frontier country in which real men carry guns. Mm. And then that whole polarised sexism basis. I mean, as we saw when Trump came out with those shocking comments, then I uh, can't remember which politician it was said, we have to revere and champion women, said somebody who's criticising Trump. I mean, revere and champion women. And <laughs> somebody said they're not pedigree dogs. You know, just treat them equally. But it's part of that real men shoot guns and women stay home and look pretty. As well as the comparison between Trump and Corbyn in the relationship with the party, there have been parallels drawn between the Brexit campaign and the way that that appealed to non-voters and people who felt they were outside the uh, political sphere as well. So let's move on to that, Ollie. Let's talk about Brexit. This week sees the enticing prospect of our right honourable friends, the Brexiteers, going head-to-head with our learned friends, the lawyers, in a legal battle over Britain's exit from the EU. On Thursday, the Attorney General himself will make a rare trip to the High Court to defend the government against allegations of constitutional chicanery in its decision to refuse MPs a vote on when and whether to trigger Article 50 that will result in Britain leaving the European Union. The government insists it can win the case, but even lawyers on its own green benches are not so sure, and if it loses, the government's current Brexit strategy may have to be rethought before it is even formulated. So this should be a fairly straightforward thing. We voted to leave the EU. The process of doing that is you trigger Article 50, that starts the two-year process of negotiations, then we leave. Um, But it, it... (laughs) <laughs> There's a risk that Theresa doesn't even get to the first hurdle that she wanted. <laughs> she said at the Tory party conference that she would trigger it by the end of March, but MPs wouldn't get a say on that because she takes the view that the public have voted and so we don't need to consult yes. Parliament again. But on a constitutional level, what she's relying on is this thing called royal prerogative, which effectively means that the executive, the government, has the right... Uh, to trigger Article 50 and begin the process by which we withdraw. She says that this is a sort of a fairly straightforward matter. It's entirely within her right and her government's right to do that. But what a significant number of people, including um, MPs on her own side, are worried about is that this is actually stretching the definition of what the executive can do without actually having to get parliamentary sovereignty and they point out that the whole point about the leave campaign was supposedly restoring sovereignty for parliament only for Theresa May to say sorry sovereignty in this case means me me means me taking that control from <laughs> exactly. you as MPs yeah. um, and you know it actually is what's interesting about it is not just the the connotations that it has for Brexit but the connotations it has for other aspects of the government because we don't have a written constitution because these things aren't defined there has been this sort of slow slipping over the years in terms of what the government can do without the explicit authorisation of Parliament. And when this case goes before the Supreme Court, it's being fast-tracked, so it will be heard before the point at which we trigger Article 50. So expect it around Christmas time. Um, if the Supreme Not Court... Not very fast, that track, is it? Mm. Well, By legal standards, it's, it's a sprint. <laughs> um, uh, when, 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 when that happens, if the court does decide that um, Parliament needs to say, it will have quite profound implications on the way in which things happen in the future because this judgment will be taken into case law and it will determine what may, may go henceforth. 
Yeah, I mean, part of the problem with this is that the people calling for MPs to have a vote on Article 50 are the people who are very cross about the fact that we voted to leave the EU. It's Nick Clegg and Ed Miliband and a whole cast list of people, well, it, the it, enemies yes. of the Brexiteers. You, you, you could be somewhat suspicious if you were a Brexiteer um, and wonder why they've suddenly discovered this newfound sort of passion for parliamentary uh, sovereignty. But I think we shouldn't underestimate the sense of grievance, which is obviously what's motoring this push. And I also think that there is some justification for them saying we want... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Proper scrutiny, because if you, as far as I know, the only leading Brexiteer who ever equated leaving the EU with also leaving the single market during the referendum campaign was Michael Gove. So I think it's easy... Our new to, colleague on the Times. Our new colleague on the Times. I think it's easy for us to forget that during the referendum campaign, most of the Brexiteers went out of their way to say, look, this isn't about leaving the single market. Uh, perhaps they should have been tested a bit harder on that claim. Didn't now, yeah, now the people who didn't want to leave are saying, well, hang on a minute, this isn't what people voted for. This needs proper scrutiny. We need to have a look at this. There's no blank check. And uh, I, I, I think there's going to be a lot of turbulence in Parliament here in other areas. I get the feeling that that there's, you know, as, as old party lines are slightly sort of breaking down, Labour Party's in disarray. I, get, I, I think Parliament could be about to have a real moment. And Jenny, we had the extraordinary spe- spectacle in the Commons on Monday of David Davis, the staunch defender of parliamentary democracy and uh, the voice of the strong-willed backbencher batting away all of these requests for Parliament to be consulted on this. He's now the Brexit Secretary and suddenly he's he's much more enthusiastic about the government using its muscle rather than letting MPs have a say. Yeah, it's amazing what having a bit, a bit of power <laughs> does to your perspective, isn't it? You know, everyone doesn't, everyone believes in democracy until they're, they're at the top of it and then they think, hang on a minute, much better if everyone just does what I say. What I'm really interested in about this is how far could it go? Could it go theoretically to the point where MPs could block the triggering of Article 50 altogether. Because then, if, if so, then we're into a real constitutional crisis. On the one hand, you've said to the people, vote, and they voted. And then on the other, you've got Parliament saying, actually, that referendum thing, we think we think it was wrong. And then aren't we in a stalemate? I mean, this was always the problem about chucking a referendum into a representative parliamentary democracy. I mean, I think it's the question of how the government do it. I mean, if Theresa May's got any sense, and she loses the court case and is forced to have this vote, she will call the vote before she has been specific about what she means by Article 50. So she will say this vote is purely on the constitutional terms of triggering Article 50. The vote was clear and we're following it through. If she is forced by Parliament to give a few details of what she envisages that means, then she opens a complete hornet's nest Mm -hmm. and that could be problematic. But I think what she could do is just put the vote through 
before she's been specific, and then when she actually triggers Article 50, at that point, she is then she so is then a bit more specific about what you want. The actual purpose of this will be just to establish that there must be limits on what the executive can do without consulting Parliament, but it won't get to the point of being going anywhere near reversing the decision to no, move the No, but EU. I mean, I think where we this moves is on a little bit further, but when you get to the question of this Great Repeal Act, which was trumpeted at the Shall Tory Party Conference... Shall we call it the Conference. Great Consolidation Act, since that's much more what it is? Or, it puts or, so, or we just take the word, take the word great, great out of it, because it is actually quite a simple bill and we don't shove great over everything. But that is effectively asking Parliament to give a blank cheque to the government to negotiate what they will. And then when the negotiations are complete, this act, as it will then be, is triggered automatically. So it's potentially the case that Parliament never gets a say on the specifics. Which, is, that, why, which is why the push for right. Article 50 is a way of putting down a marker of saying you cannot do this entire process without us being involved. Exactly. And if they get a vote at the beginning, that, that at least... Sets the precedent that they might get other votes later. And the other um, sort of slightly uh, geekish bit to this is that um, the Article 50 case is not just being supported by the sort of usual Remainer suspects. There's a guy called Stephen Phillips who is a a Conservative MP um, who perhaps has the largest outside earnings of of any MP, which was (laughs) £750,000 last year. And guess what he is? He's a he's a barrister, Um, (laughs) and um, he voted to he voted he voted to leave. Um, but he is he's one of those people who is saying, actually, there's a wider question at stake here and um, we need to test that so in court. So there is a principle. There is a principle. There's always yeah. a principle. Oh. Don't, don't, <laughs> think so Ill. don't think so ill of these politicians. Now, before we move off of Brexit, um, Ollie, you are launching a Brexit briefing this week. We are. Um, on Thursday lunchtime, it will hit your inboxes if you go on to times website and sign up now um it's 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 not complicated it's obviously completely straightforward if you're an existing time subscriber you can sign up to it through the my bulletins page in my account everyone else you can become a registered user which also gives you access to full articles every week on the times.co.uk and then you can sign up to the brexit briefing and all of our other newsletters as well we look forward to that on thursday Uh, but for now let's move on to the labor party and emma Is Jeremy Corbyn's post-conference reshuffle the reshuffle that refuses to die? As fast as the Labour leader appoints someone to the shadow cabinet, another one hops off and the merry-go-round keeps turning. Meanwhile, the pound plunges, a rumpus erupts over government plans for a hard Brexit, and the latest poll puts the Tories 17 points ahead of Labour. Jeremy Corbyn's response has been to spend time walking Hadrian's Wall buying ethically sourced knitwear for his wife. Surely now it's time to ask... Just how relevant is Labour? Well, you're not uh, holding back, uh, <laughs> Emma. I mean, where to begin with that? I mean, the poll, this, the ICM poll this week is extraordinary. So it puts the Tories 17 points ahead. Uh, and ahead in every single age group, demographic, social class, men and women, miles ahead. They're only just saved from having the worst ever poll rating with ICM by the adjustments that ICM make late in the process of looking at the polls, which actually normally is supposed to help the Tories, but actually just about uh, keeps them from being the worst. This this reshuffle we've got, I think there's still 40s front bench jobs he hasn't filled as he casts around to find people to um, to fill them. But just, do, do you feel a bit like we're just sort of slightly losing interest in them? I think the public's losing interest. I think the Labour Party's own MPs are losing interest <laughs> because uh, they look at it, they look at the situation and they think... Uh, this isn't the Labour Party that I signed up for. I'm talking about the more moderate MPs, uh, of which I think the vast majority in the Parliamentary Labour Party would still count themselves as, as which is one of the reasons why he can't fill, complete his reshuffle, because there aren't enough people to take up the jobs. I mean, the fun fact about this poll is the fact that it's not the lowest the Labour Party has ever 
ever been. It could still go lower. Um, I heard uh, that um, in at least in polls that we've conducted on the Times, the Labour Party has been as low as eighteen percent. So there's still some. So, 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 so yeah. you know, Corbyn's still got plenty. He's still got plenty, plenty of distance to go. But um, I, I do think that the, the difficulty is, it, it, you know, if ever you needed an opposition, it would be now. We've got a proper market turmoil. Currency is under pressure. Uh, the Tory party is set to make some extremely big and important decisions about our future, about our children's future. And uh, meanwhile, the, the Labour Party fiddles. If there, if there is any opposition, it appears to be being organised by the Conservative own party, you know, with sort of leading moderates there, uh, corralling MPs from across the the House. So I do think Jeremy Corbyn is doing an exceptionally good job of uh, writing the Labour Party out of history. Um, Jenny, it feels like the, the thing that the Labour MPs are most obsessed with this week, the pound is plunging, uh, we're finding out more about what Brexit means, um, and they're all just obsessed with how big Shami Chakrabarti's house is, because she at the weekend was trying to defend uh, her position of attacking grammar schools while sending her own children to a selective grammar school, and then volunteered all this information about how she lives in a nice house and eats nice food, and apparently that's why she has to send her children to private school. Oh, can we deviate? I missed that. Just how nice is her house? Where is it? Oh, I think you can read all about it. it, it it's, it's, it's in... It's it's, in, it's near the Imperial War Museum. It's two and a half two million pounds. Two and a half pounds. million pounds, South London. Well, she was married to a banker, I yeah, believe. Yeah, and all those, you know, appearance fees for question time obviously added up while she was at Liberty. <laughs> but it, Labour MPs are very cross about this Shami Chakrabarti thing because she's gone from being carrying an independent review into anti-Semitism to the party, which she claimed meant that she had to join the party and then found that there wasn't any widespread anti-Semitism and was then given a period is now in the shadow cabinet. It's a sad fact that, again, that, you know, we're all much more compelled by stories of individuals than we are about, you know, big tales about the sweeps of what's happening in history, because that's the way human beings are. So I think Shami Chakrabarti is clearly a bit of a disaster for the Labour Party and putting in the shadow cabinet. A whole collection of other disasters. But, but, as Emma says, it's it's the big picture that matters, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, what's happened to the Labour Party is truly shocking. When I went to party conference just over a year ago, and Corbyn had just won his shock victory, what was noticeable was that all the moderate MPs, who frankly hadn't done any any decent thinking for the past five years or so and completely deserved their defeat at the hand of Jeremy Corbyn, were completely on fire. And they're saying we're going to set up um, workshops and thinking groups and think tanks and we're going to come up with new strategies and we're going to get moderate members into the party and the fight back starts now. And it was zealous and excited. Well, you turn up this year after Corbyn's won its second victory and they're sitting around practically catatonic with despair. <laughs> and... Um, I was having lunch with three really intelligent, marvellous female Labour MPs and they were just sitting there with their phones pinging with resignation messages from key members of their party. And when I asked somebody who used to be an absolute leading light in the future of Labour what her strategy was for the next year, thinking she was going to tell me something about how they're going to tackle the government on Brexit or what they're going to do about the poor or something, she said, I've got two aims. One is to hang on to my seat in the face of boundary reselection. The second is to keep enough key people from resigning in my constituency that I've got support. And that's the limitation of her ambition now. And she's representing the opposition in the country and all she can think about is how to stop her own position imploding. Not only this is one of the problems, isn't it, that actually what's going to happen is the people who were going to fight the good fight last year now are just going to give up and walk away and probably give up their seats, aren't they? If yeah. they don't lose them. I mean, what some people were talking about a while back was this idea that the sort of moderates, as it were, could go off and form a new party um, and sort of that could be the real sort of social democratic party or whatever you were going to call it. But 
as I think someone that um, we met when we were at conference says, the problem is that the Labour Party is a coalition. It's a coalition of, yes, that social democratic wing, but also the Fabian wing and the trade union movement. It's a coalition that has at its core the brand, and that brand is Labour. And they fear that if they walked away from the brand of Labour, they would only take a very small proportion of its supporters. And so, you know, they have a choice. Either they stick it out and hope that Corbyn, you know, loses an election or they can get rid of him before then. They can hold on to their seats and they can reclaim Labour for themselves. But they don't really see a prospect of, of going it alone. Well, look, so that I wrote a piece in the Red Box email at the beginning of the Labour Party conference where I just said, where, where is anyone in the party with the courage and the balls? You know, it's obviously not working. They're sitting mm. around waiting for something to turn up and you know there's a whole generation of Labour MPs your Tristrams and your Chuckers and your Rachels who came in expect they expect to be in government departments now not mm. fighting it out to chair backbench committees or whatever and uh, a lot of them took great exception to this I interviewed Chuck and who, who, who said quite clearly in the podcast a couple of weeks ago I've got balls and that's why I'm staying in the Labour Party mm. But there is, and it, the people we were talking to there, it provoked quite passionate reactions from them. But it was the reaction, that the ultimate conclusion was, we're just going to stay and just sort of hope that something turns up. But we've been doing that for 12 months and we'll do it for maybe another two or three years and then we'll probably get deselected. Or if not, we might lose our seats. And if not, I might just go off and run a think tank. Yeah, and the trouble is, for Labour, is that the most talented will be those people that potentially leave. Not all, but some. Those people who have the possibility of doing jobs outside which are going to be well paid and are going to be interesting. They're the people who think, well, do I really want to spend the next 10 years of my life in opposition not doing very much? Maybe I'll go off and do something else. The people will be left behind are perhaps those MPs with less ambition who just want to see their time through to retirement age, and that isn't good for democracy. Just because um, Emma touched on the reshuffle, who do you think is worth watching in this new front bench? Because there are quite a lot of people that, bluntly, the lobby haven't... Uh we're going to have to get acquainted to a whole bunch of new people. Um, rather like we had to get acquainted with Jeremy Corbyn when Jeremy Corbyn first um, <laughs> was get, uh, Keir, uh, Keir Starmer's interest. He's the shadow Brexit secretary. Keir Starmer Sir is Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer to us all, yeah. I'm fascinated by why he has decided to take that job because, you know, he is, to all intents and purposes, a moderate. But clearly, you know, he thinks that Brexit is a big issue and Labour needs an effective voice on that. And I suspect he's put aside his differences. Also, perhaps he has one eye to thinking, well, the person who eventually succeeds Jeremy Corbyn when an election is called is that person who hasn't completely alienated all his supporters. So when he's up against the alternative candidate from the left, whether that be John McDonald or someone else, um, you can say, well, I was loyal. It was a sort of, it's the Andy Burnham technique, as it were. <laughs> Oh dear, I've sort of almost forgotten all about Andy Burnham, but um, thank you for bringing him up again. Uh, uh, listen, I think that's all we've got time for uh, this week, but do make sure you sign up to the Brexit briefing from Ollie uh, and our colleague Henry Zeffman. That'll be out on Thursday. And if you if you enjoy receiving emails in the Times, then you can also sign up to my uh, Red Box daily briefing, not just weekly, Ollie, but mine is daily. <laughs> if you inexplicably haven't signed up to that already, you can go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box email, and anyone can sign up to that one. You can also tweet us at Times Red Box or find us on. Facebook. Do remember to subscribe to the Red Box podcast on your Android device or via iTunes, where you can also give us a rating um, as long as you're going to be nice. For political junkies, Michael Gove, as we were discussing earlier, makes his debut, or should that be return, as a Times columnist from this Friday. But for now, from Jenny, Ollie, Emma, and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.